Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ashbat now and very recently the founder of Pillar. People can learn more at hellopillar.com. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You and I have both been immigrants for work, so let's start this episode a bit differently with a worst first day in country showdown. I'll go first. When we left South Africa, we had packed all our stuff in the, in the shipping container, sent them off, took a few weeks of holiday, you know, to experience the best the country has to offer. So when we left Denmark to go to Hong Kong, we wanted something similar. You know, maybe two weeks, your stuff's on the boat anyway, it's going to take a few months, you've got no rent. Yeah, sit down, acclimatize. Yeah. <laughs> Summertime in Europe, perfect. But I was told by the new bank I was joining, their 150-year history depended on me arriving straight away. So we packed up, camped at a friend's house for the night, on the plane the next day, landed in Hong Kong, 7 a.m., straight to the hotel, shower, straight to the new office, by my desk about 9 o'clock, meet my boss with a, sorry, too busy to talk, I'm going away for two weeks, I'll catch up with you when I get back, keep yourself busy for two days. Perfect. So instead of having a holiday, spent two weeks in Hong Kong reading policy documents and, and trying to work out who was who. So tell me about your worst first day in country. I win on this, Brendan, hands down. <laughs> so this is really funny, right? So I'm the first one of my family getting out of India. And uh, the first ticket I got was to come to London. And I was fortunate enough to get job in financial services while I was in India. So, you know, straight out of India export in a way. And um, I land here, I remember the date even, I think it was 7th of Feb, 2008. Company was nice. They arranged to pick me up. I, I can still remember the smell of fresh air in London. I go, this is amazing. They bring me up, put me in the Canary Wharf uh, service departments. Next morning, I dress up, going to Goldfish offices, you know, say hello to my boss who is Canadian. And they said, Ash, you've just come here. Why don't we take you out? So there you go. The entire team goes out for lunch. We come back after lunch. You know, everyone logs on at the same time after lunch. And there is an email saying everyone has been let go that day. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. As you can perhaps hear, I've taken the show on the road. After nearly 40 lockdown episodes, I found myself in London for the Fintech Talents Lending 3.0 conference. And so I decided to take the opportunity to visit Ashbutt and see what he was building at Pillar. Let me know what you think of this new live format. It's one we're going to use from time to time for special episodes. It's a little more loose, sure, but I hope also a little bit more natural and maybe a little bit more engaging. This is probably also a good opportunity to remind you that if you're doing something interesting in the lending industry, feel free to reach out to me at brendan at howtolendmoneytostrangers.show and I'll see if I can fit you in. And if you're doing something interesting in the lending industry within reach of Brighton, well, then maybe we can do it face to face. But first, let's get back to the show.
So it's just like four four hours of me starting the new job I've been let go and um the HR woman she was really nice she comes running towards me I'm like oh my god here comes the train right and I'm, I'm trying to hide away Elaine she comes up to me and say ask can I have a word and she said oh I'm just terrified that you must be terrified I'm like I'm actually fine I couldn't react I'll be honest I didn't react I didn't know what a layoff is all my friends were panicking and they're saying oh my god we're all fired we're all doomed I was like okay fine if that's what happens I'll just take the next plane back to India <laughs> job done so what happened was goldfish got acquired by barclay card on that date and in a true hollywood style the barclay card officers came straight after lunch almost like a you know fbi raiding an office and they said no one panic we've got this the transaction is just uh, closed and yes you're all at risk officially but you'll have to reapply to get into barclay card which is fair so we reapplied and thankfully barclay is honored my joining date and all of that so i've officially been employees of barclay from the day i landed yeah that's uh, definitely wins wins that showdown and your career from there you worked with clearbank future finance and then the big one revolut where you were head of lending so in the last 5 years or so of your career were at that front end of i guess global digital banking What was that like to be working in that industry as these big success stories were coming to life? It was uh I would say amazing. I think when I worked at Barclays in a big company it's very easy to get lost. And since then I've been in small to medium lending space companies, fortunate enough to do six product launches, two credit cards for loans across different fintechs. So yeah, I definitely I'm a product launch kind of a guy, product build kind of a guy. Revolut managed to convince me to join them in, and Again, I have a funny story with Revolut as well. I would have and could have joined Revolut five years back when they were in forty employees. So now I'm kicking myself, yeah. but it's okay. Uh, lo and behold, I joined in 2019, um, head of lending for UK, and then I was given US to kickstart that, uh, and it's been amazing. I think Revolut, you are the master of your own destiny, and Nick gives you that freedom, which is amazing. Yeah, because. you know they've become that poster child of the challenger banks but yeah i guess from the outside people may be challenging what that environment was like but it sounds like it was less about the things you'd read in the newspaper about like all work no play and more about you're owning the business and i guess when you're owning your own business it is all work and no play for a while so um you then left revolut and now you you're launching pillar What was the founding journey from going from within entrepreneurial small businesses to employee number 1 what's that been like It's uh I would say fairly terrifying <laughs> to start with but hugely rewarding right given that I've been fortunate enough to work in small to medium and even large like revolut but the attitude there is fairly startupy I think the biggest difference starting your own journey is the buck stops with you that's what keeps me up at night Uh, so apart from being the ceo and the founder where the buck stops with you nothing else changes really and with pillar it's not just another fintech it's got a bit more meaning behind it as well so what is the vision and that story that got you into this business great so keep coming back to the immigrant thing i think pillar seeds were sown when you might have experienced yourself is when you land in a developed country like uk or the us you're pretty much credit invisible right and the first and experience was it was sometime in 
and I wanted to get an iPhone. And I clearly remember while going to Barclays, Barclays card, I stopped by the car phone warehouse in Canary Wharf. I said, can I get the new iPhone, please? And they said, sorry, computer says no. You haven't got any credit data. I'm like, I'm, an, I'm doing a reasonable job. I'm getting paid handsomely, but I still can't get a 500 pound iPhone. That was the initial etching on the wall, I would say. And slowly and slowly, I, I, I think I always had that entrepreneurial bug in me. And that's what kept pushing me towards fintechs. And I think Revolut really put the gas on the fire which said, go and do it because you're surrounded by so highly aspirational people. So the story is still the same, which is I want to help people who want to build their credit, not just in the UK, but any country. And uh, validation came actually at Revolut as well when I was head of lending for both UK and the US. I was scratching my head trying to join up the data from the UK and the US. I made the bureaus, which you are from, not TransUnion, but one of the bureaus. And I tried to force them into a single contract. Why doesn't credit bureau in the US speak to the credit bureau in the UK and give me one single contract? Because the same consumer. They wouldn't. They were like two sulking sisters. They don't want to see eye to eye. You know, sometimes there can be corporates that aren't necessarily owned the same, but this is not one of those situations. And yeah, as you said, as an immigrant, I felt some of that before. I moved late in my career to the UK. I was very established already. You know, I was just about 40. I had savings, I had shares held with a bank uh, that operates in the UK. They'd given me a mortgage before I left and I landed and I applied for a credit card from the local branch and they said, no, you're not on the bureau. And I went to get a phone as well. They wouldn't give me, I didn't want the phone. I just wanted a contract. They wouldn't give me an airtime contract until I'd been in country for three months or six months. If somebody can come from the industry, I was working for the credit bureau. I'd come from working for the credit bureau. I had worked in banks. I've got my savings in the bank, but I didn't have credit in the UK. And those things all add little expenses or limit opportunities. And most people don't have the easy option of, well, I just have a debit card. You land in country, it's expensive. When we moved to Denmark, my wife and I, we went to Ikea for a day and furnished a house in one day. And we got to the end of it and we had the credit card out and to, to try and buy furniture because we were going home to a house with no furniture, no bed, you know, sleep on the floor for a few days until the deliveries came through. People need some credit to, to, to get that going. And if it's hard for people from the industry who've got contacts, who've got relationships with these same businesses abroad, and they can't bring it on, it's even harder for most people. And exactly, I worked in the Philippines, which is an economy based a lot on immigrants. And people would have good credit profiles in their home country, in the Philippines, India's got a lot of the same patterns. And then they want to leave, they want to land in a, in, a, in a market like the US. They've got good jobs, but in terms of income change, that's why they left. They were going to earn a lot more in America or in the UK or in Australia, wherever they're going. But they just need that, that little bridge because... Yeah, you know, the savings from home countries don't translate very well. Yeah, you know, come from South Africa. The the currency difference just means you could sell a house in South Africa and, and you wouldn't be able to buy a car in, in the UK with it. So you need that little starter to help you and then you can get that you can do that job you've got, you can pay it back. And you know, I spoke before to um Nova Credit who they built a whole business around this, which shouldn't be possible to be I mean, it's a great business they've built and I like the people there, but it shouldn't need to be a business because they are proper old-fashioned inefficiencies. This is not 
logistics of moving something by boat and it's always going to be difficult. This is taking down a barrier that's there because no one's thought about it or nobody's bothered to do it. And I'd always thought it was because it didn't move the needle in terms of the population. But yeah, when I spoke to to Nova Credit, to, to Misha Esipov, he was saying that actually in the U.S., more immigrants arrive in America every year than Americans turn 18 and enter the customer base. And more so when you look at who's opening a card. Because when I arrived in England, I wanted a mortgage. I wanted a credit card. I wanted to get a car. I wanted a phone. All of those within a few weeks. And now that I live in the UK, there's no, been no week where I've in the same week wanted a mortgage, a car, a credit card. And go to Ikea. <laughs> yeah. And another couch. Yeah. We had so many problems with that. It's a little bit off topic for the show, but we, Ikea ends, the last section is the beds. And we did this, when did we move? 2008, 2009. So it was before, well, same as same as you. Yeah, first iPhone had just been released. I didn't have an iPhone. I didn't have an ability to look up and Google what size a bed is. So in South Africa, beds are double bed, queen size bed, king size bed. And that's what we had all our bedding for, a queen size bed. So we got to the end of Ikea, exhausted and grumpy, to the bed section, and it's all in centimeters. So what size is a queen size bed? And so we didn't know, and we couldn't have a smartphone to look it up. So we started desperately SMSing everybody back home. Can you measure your bed for us, please? But nobody got back to us in time. So our, our logic was South Africa is a country where you've got lots of space. So our houses tend to be far bigger than they are in Europe. So we took the biggest bed that they had. Turns out it's way bigger than our bed was. So we got to uh, our apartment in Denmark. Wasn't a problem. But then when we moved to Hong Kong two years later, we had to go house hunting based on an apartment that could fit the bed. And our first apartment was literally the bed touched the three walls of, of the bedroom. Uh, and that's how we chose that apartment to move into. So, yeah, they, if they'd given us a credit card, then maybe we, <laughs> we would have had a, a two years later an easier house hunting uh, experience. But it's, you know, it, it just baffles me, right? I mean, we're sending telescopes in space. We are electric cars everywhere. Everything is in the cloud. It's a completely new age happening right in front of our eyes. And yeah, by saying that we moved to UK when the iPhone launched, yes, we are giving our ages away. But it's one of those things like the world has completely changed in the past 13, 15 years, right? And even then, you've got bureaus updating their credit file every month based on an FTP file. Most inefficient way to communicate. Yeah, and we were, we were talking earlier before recording that if you think about it, Tracing it back, it's come to when we needed to send a letter in the post to tell you what your, your statement was. So if we think particularly a credit card, you know, there was the window period of spending 30 days. We're going to get rolled up into to one statement so that we could print out a statement, put it in an envelope, send it to you, wait a few days for you to write the check and put it in and then that to clear. And we needed to give you a window. So you're sort of 45, 55 day interest free period that still exists today. When there's absolutely no need to send paper statements, there's no need to group everything up into a monthly single batch to be run overnight on the mainframes. We've just got these built-in time delays that mean data's getting there over three months. But if you reimagine it from the start, it could be live. And that space has not been touched in the past 30 years. Credit cards have been credit cards. And it's about time that some innovation happens in that credit card space. and 
we want to enable the consumers to be masters of their own destiny by consenting for their data to be shared right and it's not just the immigrants people who are within the uk who are getting a bad hand dealt just because they are not in the credit data held by the three bureaus and then you've got a few services in the uk which charge you anywhere from 5 pound to 60 pound per month with the promise of building a credit file whereas actually what they're doing is they're just just reporting a fake credit into the bureau and on the pretext of helping someone with the credit we just don't, don't believe in that so it is $1000 a year to save you from from bad lending which is I mean, in one way, I guess it shines a light on how bad some of that fringe lending is. So <laughs> the UK has largely seen the end of its payday lending, but it was really bad. And I think it's not quite as bad, but there's still a lot of this out there. And a lot of, you know, it comes up a few times that it's expensive to be poor. It's expensive to exist outside the system because of that hurdle. So you can't get into the system. So you'll take another credit and maybe it will have a fixed £5 a month fee for some other admin that wouldn't be there or the interest rate is high. And it's justifiable in the individual case because from a risk-based point of view, maybe that's what the model suggests and the, the open market competition, but it's artificial in that it's an inside or outside world. And so there's one set of competition inside, and maybe that's 80% of people that can operate in there happily. But for the 20% of people outside, there's a different group of competitors. And there's... A different level of law that that can go down to. You're listening to How to Lend Money to Strangers. If you're enjoying it, please hit the little plus button to subscribe and share it with your connections on LinkedIn. Now, let's get back to the show. We were talking about the credit bureau data moving abroad. You know, I came here this morning in the Uber. My Uber, I signed up to when I think I was in in the Philippines on on a business trip once. I go in Philippines, I go to Hong Kong, back home, it was still working, I go to Thailand. That's got my data. Uber knows how much I've paid, who's got my credit cards. I've switched credit cards, I've moved countries. <laughs> it's easier for Uber to do these sort of things than it is for, for the bank. Exactly, which yeah. is counterintuitive. Yeah. It should not be that. I'm the same guy in Philippines, I'm the same guy in Hong Kong, so why don't you see me as the same guy, right? Yeah. Whereas that doesn't happen, right? The moment you land, oh, reapply and start from zero. Or you get a data disparity, the indian data is not the same as uk the uk is not the same as us so uh, hopefully we'll try to join all of it together that's the plan the end goal being that like like you were mentioning you know the poverty premium of poor credit should be taken away by homogenizing the data not just within the country but across countries so when we think about when the first lessons about people how to manage your credit score started coming out before the days of open data and of free-flowing data. Us as consumers were outside and almost being given permission somewhat reluctantly at times to see our own data. And it felt a little bit like a school report card. I worked 10 years in the credit bureaus. I think credit bureau scores are really powerful and useful, but this is not a personal judgment. It doesn't know who you are. We strip out your name. We strip out your address. All that stuff's gone. It's just people that had the same history a few years ago, how did they perform? And you talk about you know showing consumers their, their bureau scores and, and putting it in context. I think the more we let people see that and we can get that message across that your score can go up 10 points one month and down 10 points another month, that's not a judgment on you. It's easy to see risk. If you didn't pay your previous debts, you're going to be risky. But it's very hard to see not risk. 
So they lots of little tiny things that are trying to differentiate between somebody who's moderate risk to low risk to very low risk, and people are going to get very stressed about that. Where if we can see our data, I think, and own it, say it is our data. Let us see it. Let us see where it comes from and helping improve it. Exactly. That's that, that's that's what we. I mean, to what you're saying, like ninety five percent of the population is good. They have good intentions. They keep up with their payments, right? And the end goal being to delineate the risk of that 95% population, which is largely behavioral because the outcome is the same. Everyone keeps up with the payment. And as you know, there's a dark art around scores and we need to demystify most of it. And that's what Pillar is all about. We want to empower the customer first by accessing their credit scores so that they can see, okay, what's happening and what's not happening. And secondly, which I find a bit confounding is no one is really helping them how to work on it so that they can get a better outcome out of it, right? For example, uh, the same 95% population, one guy withdraws money on the credit card, the other one doesn't. And as you know, the person who has withdrawn cash on the credit card is deemed high risk. But when the person is actually withdrawing the cash, why wouldn't the credit card company give them a prompt saying, hey, did you realize if you do this, your score may go down and your line may go down, right? Because cash is very exactly. profitable on the credit card. And that's the reason it's risky. When I was in the credit card industry, we were charged a very high premium to withdraw cash. And invariably, it was free on your debit card. And the assumption was, if you're paying that money, it must be because you've got nothing in your, your bank account to withdraw. But there's going to be a lot of people who don't know yes. that they're paying five pounds or whatever the fee may be. Exactly. Which is, I think, a great point to, to raise up. That's why, I mean, our core pillar, uh, funny, the core pillar of pillar is empower the customer. We are not charging for ATM withdrawals, never ever. We will always prompt you when you're withdrawing cash that try not to do it. Go to debit card, why don't you use that? The moment you go higher into utilization, and as you know, credit card companies love people to spend, love people to pay interest. We'll not do that. We'll actively give you a prompt the moment you've used more than 60% of your credit line saying, hey, listen, it'll impact your behavior and give them other toggles and tools to help themselves. And then they're happier and you're happier. Yeah, and we, we talked about the, the delay in the traditional credit bureau reporting. Uh, there's some tools out there now that you can monitor your credit report, but it's your behavior from three, four months ago. So even if you can react to that to say, okay, my score's gone down and now I want to try and fix it, well, one, what was it that caused that? You don't necessarily know. But even if you knew, so, okay, it's probably because I withdrew my cash. The last four months, you have, you've been doing that behavior and it hasn't caught up. So the wave is still breaking. You're still, even if you stop today, you've got four more months of, of cash withdrawals that are still to hit the bureau report. That's it. And you're going to try adjust your behavior. You're going to go look online again next month. Your score's maybe gone down. You're going to lose motivation because, well, I've changed my behavior. My score's gone down. But it's this catch-up period, whereas if when you're at the machine, you're getting alert, that day you're getting alert, you can stop that behavior, you can change it. It's easier for us to see these and notice these because we're in the industry. I think this education and education at the time you can change behaviors is that's where you're actually going to make change rather than just saying, okay, we're, we're not quite as bad as we, we used guys, to be. Yeah. Yeah. The regulator has taught, had, had a word with us and now we, we're not doing that thing we, we, we weren't allowed to do. Exactly. In terms of how you're going to be doing that at Pillar, uh, you, you, know, you talk about providing this all-in-one credit platform. What is your vision for what that will look like for your customers? 
I think the simple answer there is we want every customer to be empowered by all the data they need to make their own credit decisions. And the end goal of it is to enable them to build a credit passport that they can take to whichever country they're going. How about that utopian goal? Tell your bank, hey, this is my credit passport. This is my pillar passport, which is nothing but a data aggregation of your footprint globally. Why don't you consume this and give me a mortgage here? And they'd be happy to give you that because they can see the data globally. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how did get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host so that being the utopian end goal the first step surely starts at empowering the customer by giving uh, them access to all of this and again one of the key features that we want to give you is once you know how to improve your credit score once you know how to take care of it in the long run so that you can reduce your cost of borrowing. It still baffles me that even people within our industry cannot reverse calculate the interest charge on a credit card statement. And this is absolutely shocking. I have met many people within the industry who do not know how to calculate APR. And these are the people who are issuing cards. No, I fully believe it. So I, I know how to calculate APR, but what I don't know how to do is read my gas bill. <laughs> I, I, I did, my degree was in accounting. I, I didn't become an accountant, but I've got whatever that was, three, four years of accounting education. I don't know what a debit and credit is when, you, when they're sending me, and the, the gas bill will come and there's a 500-pound credit and a this debit. So much noise. And it's well, numbers all over. And why don't you give me a line that says you owe me 100 pounds? And the credit card statements, when they come, they look the same. Like, yeah, I have 20 years in the industry, I couldn't read that. Yes, completely. There's all these lack of transparency. Yes. And we can trust maybe the system is doing it, but uh, <laughs> what's it doing? And, and where are those hidden things? Of, I mean, a lot of people are paying minimum payment because they didn't realize there was an alternative. Exactly. And how much they'll end up saving, man, if they make the full payment every month or if they increase their payment by £100 every month. Someone should tell them that, hey, Brendan, you'll save 10 quid every month if you just increase your payment from X to Y. So having those empowerment back to the consumer and being straight about it, I think that's, that's what's missing, right? I mean, pick up any card from the high street, any credit card from the high street. You need to be a forensic scientist to figure out the interest gets charged on your cash transaction from the billing statement, from the transaction time, from the statement from the time it gets settled or from the time it gets billed. It's, it's ultra and uber complicated. 
right? Yeah. And it need not be that. Well, yeah, because cash is a great example of that because there'll be a fee for taking it out of the ATM, which a consumer might feel like, well, for the convenience of it, it's worthwhile. But you're right. So from day one that you withdraw cash, you're paying interest on that at credit card interest rates, which they're always high. So you've got that. And then the credit card model sort of bites you because you're not paying that for up to 55 days. And so you've got at least a month or two of interest just for that cash you withdrew. Which you might not know about. Exactly. It gets lost in all the other numbers and all the other things that roll up. And when I was in the credit card space, we would have, again, showing my age, we were using still paper based applications. And then we had all the terms and conditions printed on the back. And as regulations change, as rules change, as, as different uses of the data emerge, we would add new terms and conditions. But it's very important that the form could never be more than one page because that's what needs to fit in the envelope that someone will read and that's where we get a response rate. So the text just gets smaller. Yeah, and it's, it's a cliche with this, the fine print, but they've ticked, they've read it, it's informed consent. But, I mean, that was lazy money, whereas it sounds like you're building a, a supportive platform. Yeah, here's the data, here's what it means, and here's how we think you can react. And here are your choices, right? I mean, if you cannot calculate the APR or the interest that you're paying on your credit card or, or your mortgage, like, ask anyone how much you're paying on a mortgage, they'll say, oh, I'll have to think about it because you know, the interest rate, signed up five years back and you signed a five-year floating or whatever that is. So thankfully, again, uh, the technology now enables us massively just hook up your primary account, hook up your credit card account, hook up your loan onto the Pillar app. We will tell you how much you're paying on a simplified manner. Like, okay, Brendan, you're paying 12% interest rate on this, 2% on your home loan and 39% on your credit card. Next time when you're remortgaging, just get some extra money on your mortgage and pay off your credit card or your loan. That all-in-one solution does not exist. Pretty much need to pay an accountant to figure that out. I mean, the idea really is, if maths and technology can help anyone make the right choices, they should be empowered to do so. And thankfully, we are in that age where we can do that. Yeah, and you've just reminded me, I should have thought of this earlier, but when I was in Hong Kong, I did some research I used to talk a lot about risk-based pricing and how you could see the different APRs that personal loans were going for based on the different risk profiles. And in Hong Kong, there was a really nice shape to it where, and you could see as loans got riskier, the rates went up and they fit the model you would expect. And then a little bit later, I was sitting with the data and I thought, wait a minute, this is just the average, but I never looked at the individuals. I just asked the data scientists, give me 50%, 25 and 75. So I said, can you just send me the raw data for this? And this horrific scatter plot came up. It's from a different market, and it's now a bit old, but I think it really backs up what you're saying here. Across the board, prices were all over the show. People were paying very unusual prices, some much lower than they should have, but a lot of people higher than they should have. And then I looked at attrition, and what I saw, is a long story short, is that the price that people were moving for wasn't the market price. People didn't move for an offer that was good relative to what they could qualify for. They moved based on their historic price. So if you used to pay 10% for a loan and somebody offers you 8%, you would move, even if the market rate was maybe 6%. People didn't know what the market rate was. That's it. People didn't know that they could go and with a score of 750 and a loan of $5,000 over two years, I should expect an APR of this. Exactly. They just knew the last time I took a loan, this is what I was charged. And so if you took a loan first when you were very young, new to market, you didn't have many options, 
somebody gave you a loan 25%, and then they tell you now, two years later, well, good deal, I can give you 20%. <laughs> exactly. Well, the rate of borrowing has dropped from 11% to 0%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you talk about um, yeah, calculating what the interest rate is. So if people don't know their APR is 18%, when they see an offer in the market, they don't know should they move because they don't know, oh, well, that's way less than I'm paying. And again, another sort of inside secret is well past the statute of limitations. But when I was with a credit card issuer, we were very reluctant to use pricing offers in credit cards. So we would do a lot of analytics to see the risk of a consumer and we could see their price in a mortgage world or personal loan world. We could say, we can give you the normal rate minus 2%. But in a credit card world, we never wanted to say, hey, we can give you a credit card. It's only going to have 24% interest rate. Because then people would realize, what, I'm paying 26% now? People didn't know they were that high. Exactly. And so we didn't want to call attention to it. So it's not lying. You're not telling the truth. <laughs> well, they've signed up for the interest. They technically know what the interest rate is. They're paying it now. Exactly. Say somebody's low risk. I'm going to lose less from them. So I've got a bit of leeway here. I want to attract that sort of customer. In the personal loan world, the mortgage world, certainly you say, okay, I can give you a little bit off the interest rate. But the credit card world will say, well, let me give you a sign on gift. Yeah, let me yeah, give you yeah, some yeah. more air miles. Yeah. And I don't know. That was long ago in a different country. I'm sure everybody listening is better than we were at that. But there is this huge amount of pricing inefficiency that exists because people don't know the deals they could get. People don't know what they're paying. And uh, whether that was sort of intentional or not, you know, it's not something that the market is going to fix itself, which is, I guess, why it's so great to have this sort of fintech world with data that is, is open, that people can look at this and say, hey, here's, here's what you're actually doing. Because, yeah, a comparison website's only half, half, half the battle if you don't know what to compare to your status quo. Exactly. exactly, exactly. How much you're already paying, right? So, and, and I think it's incumbent on all the financial providers now to make it as simple as ABC for anyone to figure out what the cost of uh, borrowing is. And um, we at Pillar definitely believe let's give consumers the choice and the weapon and they will figure it out themselves. Well, I think it's a great, great vision. And as you know, the world of credit, you need credit to build credit, which is what we are trying to break. So I passionately feel that the Gen Z and some millennials as well, they will walk into a credit black hole. I've got these fintech plastics with me. I'm, I'm sorted. They don't realize that it's not actually building their credit. And once you graduate from your university and you're about to buy your first car, you'll realize that the cost of borrowing there is 20% because you didn't have a credit profile. So we need to educate them not to do that. And again, help them build their credit instead of giving them something which kind of helps you make it look cool, pay money to Brendan, divide money, split money, you know, invest in crypto, uh, but do the real stuff as well, which is helping them have achieved cost of borrowing when they really need the money. Yeah, because that, I mean, that's where it's, it matters the home and the car where the, when the money is big. Small differences in percentages can relate to very big, big savings over time. Uh, you talk about we at Pillar. Who are you building Pillar with? Well, I'm very, really fortunate to be backed by two leading venture capitalists who have backed the likes of Revolut, Airbnb, and LinkedIn. Um, so we closed our funding round with my co-founder, Adam, in November. Uh, me and Adam have, between us, we've got about 25 years of credit experience. And we have recently hired a team of 11 people, uh, some from Revolut, some from Equifax, some from machine learning, in order to build 
this ecosystem that one needs to demystify credit. Yeah, and I think that um, it sounds like the perfect team, the sort of perfect mix of of uh, skill sets. And and what do you think Brendan and this is where I'm interviewing you. <laughs> uh, what do you think when the BNPL data gets consumed by the bureaus? I mean you see a few news uh, articles right and at the same time this anticipated regulation, you know Klarna trying to launch their own credit card. What, what do you think where the dust will settle? We've seen such a rush for buying our pay later space. In a traditional lender, you've got low risk appetite, steady approach to the market. But in the fintech world, obviously, you've got VC funding, wants big returns. BNPL market's flooded. It's who's going to be the one who gets the most customers when the, when the music stops. Maybe two or three of them will be standing. And so there's this rush to take on customers, and the incentive isn't who's got the best credit profile. And that can be what's dangerous, is that four or five people with lots of marketing budget are all going over the same consumers. Most of them are going to be fine. Most of them are better off because they've got access to interest-free credit. But there's a portion of those that are overexposed. Exactly. And something to join the dots. I was recently at a symposium and one of the prime banks, uh, when they're looking at repayments into the BNPL players, you know, the likes of Klarna, Zilch and Afterpay, from their current account, they are seeing a consistent behavior because they're prime. So the bottom line there is, Prime guys can afford, they're keeping a track on uh, BNPL spending and they're just leveraging the 0% you know, freemium. Whereas a fintech bank, a uh, fairly new bank, which is I would, I've probably not got a prime population, they are seeing a massive default of the BNPL repayment through their current accounts. And when they plot it out, they see that typically kicks in when a consumer has taken more than four or five BNPLs. And that is concerning as well, right? Because it becomes so ubiquitous that people forget that they've already got their sneakers and their leather jacket and their gas stove on a BNPL and get three more. And that's when it runs out of it. It's like if you buy an item for yourself, a little treat this month, and then it's sort of a week later, you're like, when last did I splash out? Is it? Oh, it was only a week ago. And I think that that's a very real risk. It gives people a way to buy a quality item once off instead of buying three or four cheap ones because of cash flow constraints. But the risk of it is that maybe there's a hundred of them running at once. And so that's why I want it on the bureau. And so, yeah, having that central point, I think, is key that we can just keep an eye on that to say who's gone too far. And that's where I think credit cards are actually helpful because they bring it together. And not just credit card, I think the apps, the technology should allow you to see, okay, you've, you've got three outstanding payments coming up near future. I can tell because you've taken the BNPL through our platform. So bringing it all together so that you know what's money in, what's money out. Bureaus do struggle if it's a loan that doesn't last for very long. But there was already some BNPL going on. Some of the business they were doing was regulated, a very small part. There's, there's bureau plans in place that come from the, the payday lending, short-term lending space that can accommodate this a little bit better where they're looking for small, fast changes in balances. But I don't believe the BNPL's next payday lending. I think the problem is not BNPL, but I do think any market that wants to grow fast and wants to market heavily to be the winner, you create this year or two where it's a bit chaotic. And so I think that needs to find its feet. And 
you know, big banks are not standing behind. For example, HSBC ro- rolled out their new mobile app. I love it. You know, it's pretty close to a, you know, fintech standard, Revolut, Monzo, and uh, Zilch standard. Um, so they're definitely not behind. They're also focusing on let Brendan know how much money is coming out, how much money is going in, but it'll take them some time. There is always a time lag. Yeah, I think that's, you know, when it's done right, that's the innovations come from this, the, the new businesses, they, the old ones adapt. But I think the downside of innovation, the downside of having so many buy now, pay laters, emerging digital banks, the, the, the downside of the banks catching up is that there's all these offerings and you might forget, you probably, probably will forget. And to have it pulled together with that layer on top that says, have a think about this. Exactly. Uh, is a powerful one. So yeah, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you, man. <laughs> at, at one point, I forgot you're recording it. <laughs> so we are at hellopillar.com. That's H-E-L-L-O. We are currently in, in beta. And by the time this podcast airs, we should hopefully be public. Um, so yeah, it's hellopillar.com. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a fantastic chat. Thank you for having me, man. And thank you all for listening. How to Lend Money to Strangers is written and produced by myself, Brendan Lagrange and recorded today on location at the London offices of Pillar. Find out more at hellopillar.com. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find more information, more content, and full written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show. And I'll see you again next Thursday. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.